0: Chapter Three of the Suffragette: The History of the Women's Militant Suffrage Movement by E. Sylvia Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Three. The General Election of nineteen hundred six. After the inauguration of the militant tactics on October thirteenth, we determined not to let the matter rest until we had obtained a definite pledge that the incoming Liberal government would give votes to women. On December 4th came the long-expected resignation of Mr. Balfour, and the King then called upon Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, the Liberal leader, to form an administration. It was now announced that a great demonstration should be held on December 21st in the Royal Albert Hall, at which, surrounded by every member of his cabinet, Sir Henry should make his first public utterance as Prime Minister. The importance of raising our question at this meeting was of course apparent, and we at once endeavoured to procure tickets of admission. But even so early in the fight as this, the liberals did not scruple to refuse tickets to women who might be going to ask awkward questions. On one occasion, just as two tickets were about to be delivered over to me, I was accused of having questioned Mr. Asquith at a meeting in the Queen's Hall, and though I had really not been present at that meeting, I was obliged to go away empty-handed. I had been mistaken for Annie Kenny, who had come to London to attend both the Queen's Hall and the Albert Hall meetings. We both of us thought the incident most absurd, for we do not in any way resemble each other. But it put us on our guard, and when on the very morning of the Albert Hall meeting a friend sent me three tickets, we made up our minds that they should not be rendered useless by those who presented them being turned away at the doors. I had been twice interviewed in two different sets of clothes by the liberal officials who had eventually refused me the tickets, and Annie herself had been paraded before a row of stewards, it was therefore clear that if either of us went to the meeting we must go disguised. We decided at last that the three tickets should be used by Teresa Billington, who had recently joined the Union and was coming from Manchester for the meeting, by Annie herself, and by a working woman from the East End, a recent convert. Nevertheless, we intended first to give the Prime Minister a chance to answer fairly, so that no disturbance need be made. "'Shortly before the meeting, therefore, Annie Kenny dispatched by express messenger a letter to Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman on behalf of our union, asking him whether the new government would give women the vote, and stating that she should be in the hall that night in the hope that this important question would be answered without delay. If this were not done, she added that she should feel bound to rise in her place and make a protest. The next thing to do was to disguise Annie.' We understood that most of the ladies would wear evening gowns, but it was essential to show as little of her face, neck, and hair as possible, so after dressing her up in a light cream-colored frock, we added a fur coat and a thick dark veil. She told us afterwards that she felt very hot in these clothes which she was afraid to remove, but, with the little East End convert walking closely behind her as her maid, she was allowed by the scrutineers to pass into a private box which she afterwards found had been specially set apart for the use of Mr. John Byrne's family and friends. The immense, brilliantly lighted hall was filled from floor to ceiling. The platform was gaily decorated with flowers, as the prime minister began to speak annie kenney sat anxiously awaiting his answer and at last as he did not give it she rose up suddenly and hanging over the edge of the box a little white calico banner with the words votes for women painted upon it in black letters she called out in a loud clear voice will the liberal government give women the vote immediately afterwards came an answering cry from the opposite end of the hall and Theresa billington let down from the orchestra above the platform a great banner nine feet in length inscribed in black with the words will the liberal government give justice to working women for a moment there was a hush whilst the people waited for the prime minister's answer but he and his cabinet remained silent Then the whole vast audience broke into a tumultuous conflicting uproar in the midst of which the chairman vainly called for order. The organ played to drown the women's questions, and the women were flung out of the hall. The next day we returned to Manchester for Christmas, to find that Christabel was already planning a general election campaign, and all through the holidays, whilst cabinet ministers were resting from their labours, We were busy making white calico banners and inscribing them in black letters with the fateful words, Votes for Women, and Will the Liberal Government Give Women the Vote? We had no longer a doubt either that the new Liberal Government was hostile to our cause, or that it was our duty to fight them until they were ready to capitulate or to retire from office. Had it been possible, we should have opposed the election of every candidate running under their auspices, but as we had neither the funds nor the membership for so extensive a work, we decided to carry out a definite election campaign against one member of the government. Mr. Winston Churchill Mr. Churchill was selected not for any personal feeling against him, but because he was the most important of the liberal candidates, who were standing for constituencies within easy reach of our home. On the opening night of the campaign, Mr. Churchill had arranged to hold several meetings in halls in different parts of his constituency, and, as the intentions of the Women's Social and Political Union were now well known, considerable excitement and expectancy prevailed. The first meeting was held in a school at Cheatham Hill. There were a number of doors to the meeting room, one opening in the middle of a side wall and communicating with a passage leading from the main entrance to the building, Another, a big emergency exit at the back of the room farthest from the platform, and several others on each side of the platform opening into classrooms and ante-rooms. The first of these doors was the one by which the audience came in. No tickets were needed, and the solitary suffragette who presented herself was able to walk quietly and unnoticed and to take a seat in the middle of the room. If her heart beat so loud that it seemed that all must hear it, if she felt sick and faint with suspense, no one knew. The whole audience was eagerly looking for the lady suffragists. A party of women in a little gallery above the door attracted considerable attention. "'Those are the suffragists, look up there,' was whispered from all quarters. A man who sat next to the unrecognized suffragette fixed his gaze upon these ladies, and turning to his companion said, That is Miss Pankhurst. She has aged very much since I saw her last. The ladies have got their eyes on us. They will begin putting their questions soon. The hall filled up rapidly, and at last became so densely crowded that, owing to the press of people, the emergency doors at the back of the hall were burst open, and a large crowd collected outside. Mr. Churchill was late, and during the chairman's remarks and the speeches that followed, little attention was paid to what was being said, for everyone was waiting for what was to happen next. At last Mr. Winston Churchill came in. He spoke of the unsatisfactory behavior of the late government. The will of the people, he declared, had been ignored. But now, he said, you have got your chance. Yes, we have got our chance, and we mean to use it. WILL THE LIBERAL GOVERNMENT GIVE WOMEN THE VOTE? THE REPLY CAME PROMPT AND SHARP AS A PISTOL SHOT. IT WAS A WOMAN'S VOICE, AND THERE WAS A WOMAN STANDING UP WITH A LITTLE WHITE BANNER IN HER HAND. THERE WAS A MOMENT'S BREATHLESS WAITING FOR MR. CHURCHILL'S ANSWER, WHICH DID NOT COME, AND THEN THE USUAL UPROAR BURST FORTH. THE MAN WHO KNEW MISS Pankhurst WAS THE FIRST TO SNATCH THE BANNER FROM THE SUFFRAGETTE, BUT IT WAS EVIDENT THAT SITTING AROUND HER WERE MANY UNKNOWN FRIENDS. For some time it was impossible to proceed with the meeting. Whilst the noise was at its height, the interrupter sat down and waited. Then, as soon as quiet was restored and Mr. Churchill attempted to continue his speech without replying, she again got up and pressed for an answer to her question. The chairman endeavored to induce Mr. Churchill to give an answer, but without success. The stewards threatened to throw the woman out but were afraid to do so because many of the men showed that they were prepared to fight for her and in any case the meeting was so crowded that it would have been difficult to get her through the press of people The woman asking for votes seemed likely to have the best of it for once Someone suggested that if Mr Churchill would only answer or if the men in the audience would not get so very much excited things might go better but the advice was unheeded At last the chairman announced that, if the lady would promise to be quiet afterwards, she should speak from the platform for five minutes. To this she was not disposed to agree, but went up to the foot of the platform to explain that all she wanted was an answer to her question. Speaking directly to Mr. Churchill, she said, Don't you understand what it is I want? But hiding his face with a quick impatient movement of his arm, he answered crossly, Get away, I won't have anything to do with you. Then the chairman appealed to her. You had better come up to the platform, he said. We can hear you then. As it is, half the people in the meeting do not know what all the fuss is about. She consented, and for the next five minutes tried to make her explanation, but the enthusiastic liberals of the three front rows set up the wildest tumult of shouts and yells in order to drown her words. When the five minutes were over, the woman turned to go, but Mr. Churchill seized her roughly by the arm and forced her to sit down in a chair at the back of the platform, saying, "'No, you must wait here till you have heard what I have to say.' Then, turning to the audience, he began complaining of the way in which the women were treating him and concluded, "'Nothing would induce me to vote for giving women the franchise, and I am not going to be henpecked into a question of such grave importance.' As he finished this declaration of hostility the men on the platform rose as if by prearranged agreement, and the woman questioner stood up also wishing to leave. Instantly two men hurried to the side of the platform where, screened from the audience by a group of others, they swung her roughly over the edge and dragged her into an ante-room. Thinking that she was merely to be put outside she had made no resistance, but now one of the men went to find the key to lock her in whilst the other remained in the room standing with his back to the door. As soon as they were alone, he began to use the most violent language, and calling her a cat, gesticulated as though he would scratch her face with his hands. Knowing that the room was on the ground floor, she ran to the window and threw it open, only to find that it was barred. She called to some people who were passing in the side street, saying, I want you to be witnesses of anything that takes place in this room, and they came running up and shouted to the man to behave himself. He at once became quieter, and presently on a key being brought to him he locked the door and went away. Now some of those in the street discovered that one of the windows had no bars, and they called to the prisoner to go and open it in order that they might help her to escape. This was easily done, and an indignation meeting was immediately held on a piece of waste ground nearby. Meanwhile Mr. Churchill was going on to his other meetings, but he found a woman readily to question him at every one... Next day there were long columns in the Manchester papers dealing with these incidents, whilst Mr. Churchill's angry assertion that he would not be henpecked drew forth innumerable jokes from the humorous writers. A verse from one of these, entitled The Heckler and the Henpecker, with apologies to Lewis Carroll, ran as follows. The price of bread, the heckler said, is what we have to note. Answer at once who caused the war and who made Joseph's coat. But here the henpecker shrieked out. Will women have the vote? I weep for you, the heckler said. I deeply sympathize. We have asked a hundred questions and yet had no replies. But here the henpecker spread out a flag of largest size. Day by day the warfare with Mr. Churchill continued, a large proportion of the inhabitants of the district gradually becoming more and more completely converted to the woman's point of view. In some cases, after violent scenes of disorder, the entire audience got up and left the meeting to show their sympathy with them. In our Manchester election campaign, we did not confine ourselves, however, merely to questioning and heckling Mr. Churchill. We also held numberless meetings of our own and distributed thousands of leaflets. One day, my brother Harry, who was then fifteen years of age, suggested to us a scheme which, though it involved some risk of prosecution, we found irresistible. Accordingly, in the small hours of the last two mornings before polling, he and two of his schoolfellows set off with brush-and-paste-can and and some long narrow slips called fly-posters, with votes for women printed in black letters upon them. Whilst the other two boys kept the lookout for passing policemen, Harry pasted these slips cornerwise across Mr. Churchill's great red-and-white posters, which appeared on every hoarding in the constituency, just as the ordinary advertiser does when he wishes to bring out special points of attraction to heighten the public interest. Though Mr. Churchill won the election, his majority was smaller than that of any of the other Manchester Liberal candidates one of the most active workers in the new militant campaign was mrs flora drummond a cheery rosy-faced little woman a native of the island of Arran. as a girl flora gibson had been daring and high-spirited a good swimmer a splendid walker and the leader in all kinds of outdoor sports and games On leaving school, she successfully passed all examinations for the position of postmistress, but immediately afterwards the postmaster-general raised the height standard for all postmasters and mistresses to five feet two inches, the same standard being exacted both for men and women, although the average height of men is of course greater than that of women. Flora Gibson was only five feet one inch in height, and as it had been only at considerable sacrifice that her widowed mother had been able to pay for her education, poor Flora was in despair but her father's relations agreed to pay the necessary fees for her to learn shorthand and typewriting. She soon became exceedingly skilled and took a Society of Arts certificate. Shortly after this, she married Mr. Drummond, a journeyman upholsterer, and removed to Manchester, his native place. Soon after her marriage, she was obliged to resume her typewriting because bad trade threw Mr. Drummond out of regular employment. Eventually, she became manager of the Oliver Typewriter Company's office in Manchester. She had joined the W.S.P.U. on hearing of the imprisonment of Annie Kenney and Christabel Pankhurst. Mrs. Drummond was invaluable for the work of questioning cabinet ministers, which was carried on continuously in spite of our Manchester election campaign. When, early in January 1906, we heard that the Prime Minister was to speak at the Sun Hall Liverpool, she and several other members of the Union agreed to go over and question him. Mr. Balfour, who was then fighting a losing battle in the effort to retain his old seat in East Manchester, had agreed to receive a deputation from our union. Nothing very important came of the interview, though Mr. Balfour's reply was kindly and sympathetic, but long before Mr. Balfour's hotel had been reached, the deputation had discovered that they were being shadowed by detectives. As it had been arranged that some of the women should go straight on to Liverpool, they made every attempt to shake off their pursuers. Proceeding first in one direction and then in another, they were tracked all over Manchester and Liverpool until finally Christabel said good-bye to her companions and returned to Manchester. Then, instead of breaking up into two parties, the detectives all followed her, whilst the other women, in company with a number of Liverpool members of our union, quietly made their way to the sun-hall, where nine of them subsequently questioned the Prime Minister, and were all thrown out of the hall without receiving a reply. After the first woman had been rejected, Sir Campbell Bannerman said, If I might have done so, I could have calmed that lady's nerves by telling her that I am in favor of woman suffrage. But this, of course, was no answer to the question as to whether the government was prepared to enfranchise the women of the country. On January 15th, Mrs. Drummond and a number of her friends in Glasgow attended a meeting of the Prime Ministers in the St. Andrew's Hall there. Heckling is a regular institution in Scotland, and the Glasgow women declared that they would certainly receive courteous replies. On asking the usual question, Mrs. Drummond was at once flung out by the stewards, and immediately afterwards one of her companions, who had hitherto been a staunch liberal, approached her with hat, awry and disheveled clothing, saying in bewilderment, "'Oh, my! they pit me out!' During these weeks, questions were also put at several other meetings, including that of Mr. Asquith in the Sheffield Drill Hall. Everywhere the women were ejected. On January 25th, one of the last big liberal meetings of the general election was held at Atronham in Cheshire, Mr. Lloyd George being the principal speaker. The members of the WSPU who were present did not interrupt him during his speech, but waited until he had finished before asking him the usual question. "'Mr. Lloyd George then said, "'I was going to congratulate myself that I had escaped this. "'However, at the last meeting of the campaign, the spectre has appeared.' "'That was all, and the women were quickly hauled out to prevent their again raising their voices. "'So the general election ended, and we were still left without that pledge from the liberal leaders which we had set ourselves to gain.' Those of us who went through the campaign will be ever at a loss to understand the motives which led the liberal leaders to treat our first orderly and considerate questioning and even the later more persistent heckling as they did. They obviously had neither the wish nor the intention of giving votes to women during their term of office, and it was probably the fear of offending the ladies who canvassed for them that prevented their plainly saying so. Yet after all they were accustomed to parrying the questioning of men, and it was surely unwise, even from their own standpoint, to deal so violently with women. All that had been done by the new militant suffragists up to now had been merely the brilliant skirmishing of an intrepid and resourceful little band of enthusiasts, driven to employ somewhat unconventional methods, both by the old established custom of boycotting their cause, and by the ruthless brutality of the forces that were arrayed against them. Our opponents called us a stage army and a family party, and the designations were not inapt, but the little stage army was always cleverly marshaled, and its soldiers were as cheerfully and affectionately loyal to the mother of the movement and to the young general who had initiated the new tactics as though in reality they had all been members of a single family. During the general election, various attempts to press forward the question of women's suffrage had also been made by the non-militant suffragists. Miss Llewellyn Davies and others had organized a joint manifesto on this question from a large number of societies. These included, amongst others, the Women's Cooperative Guild with 20,700 members, the Women's Liberal Federation with 76,000 members, and the Scottish Women's Liberal Federation with 15,000 members, the North of England Weavers Association with 100,000, the British Women's Temperance Association, with 109,890 members, the Independent Labour Party, with 20,000 members, and the Lancashire and Cheshire Textile and Other Workers' Representation Committee, whose secretaries were Miss Eva Corbuth and Mrs. Sarah Dickinson. The Women Textile Workers' Committee had also run Mr. Thorley Smith as a woman's suffrage candidate for Wigan. Though Mr. Smith had not been elected, a good fight had been made and a very credible vote secured. The figures had been Powell, Conservative, 3,573, Smith, Woman's Suffrage, 2,205, Woods, Liberal, 1,900. End of Chapter 3